going to begin this afternoon in Psalm 113. Psalm 113. <clears throat> the writer says, Praise ye the Lord, praise, O ye servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. Who is like unto the Lord, our God, who dwelleth on high, who humbleth Himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth the needy out of the dunghill that he may set him with princes, even with the princes of his people. He maketh the barren woman to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children. Praise ye the Lord. Psalm 113 is a part of psalms known as the to praise psalms. That group of psalms was sung throughout the year as part of the Jewish worship rituals. However, they took on a certain significance at the Passover because they reflected the deliverance of Israel from Egyptian bondage. And it is very likely that during the Passover feast and the time when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper that He sang along with the disciples, that they sang from these uh, psalms during that last Passover feast prior to going out to the Mount of Olives. Now the first three verses of Psalm 113 stand as a call and a challenge to the people of the Lord to be involved in His worship and in His praise. God wants His people to worship Him and to praise Him, uh, period, but, but to do it in song, to sing to Him and to praise Him. Verse 1 is the plea to praise God. The follower is called to lift his voice and heart in praise because of who God is. We're to praise God just simply because He is God. It is a common characteristic of God's people to, to be called on to praise, and the people are commended for praising God. We look in Hebrews thirteen fifteen as just one example of that being the case. We are to offer the fruit of our lips to God in praise. The first part of verse 2 is an example of the praise offered to God. The psalmist says, Blessed be the name of the Lord. We look at the last part of verse 2 and all of verse 3, and that demonstrates the practice of praising God from this time forth and forevermore. He says, From the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. You see, God is to be praised and worshipped for eternity. And John saw that happening in the Revelation, didn't he? As those in heaven surrounded the throne of God in eternal praise, Revelation 4 and 5. Now, what we don't need to misunderstand, and a lot of people have done this, everything that we do in life is not worship. That's not what the psalmist is intending. Not everything we do is worship. Uh, but we are to always have God in the forefront of our lives. 
And we are to live in such ways as to bring honor and glory to God in the actions of our lives. We're to bring honor and glory to God when we work. We're to bring honor and glory to God when we in our leisure time. We're never to live in such a way as to bring disrespect or dishonor upon God. Now it's clear when we look in Genesis chapter 22 and we look at the account of Abraham and Isaac, Abraham going through the process of going to that place, Mount Moriah, to offer Isaac, his son, in sacrifice, it's very clear that everything we do in life is not worship. You, you recall when, when Abraham and Isaac left those young men, he said, we're going to go yonder, verse 5, and worship. Well, what had they, what had they been doing all of that time? Well, they were in that process of going to obey God, right? Abraham had was in that process of going to offer Isaac, but they weren't worshiping. Do you think that was in the forefront of Abraham's mind of what he was going to have to do, that that job he was going to have to fulfill? Abraham, go go offer your son, your only son, your only son whom thou lovest. Well, sure, it was in the forefront of his mind. Those days that he took in traveling, Sure, he was thinking about it, but he was going to go yonder and worship and praise God. So everything we do isn't worship. In the remaining verses of the psalm under consideration, we're given the reasons that we are to be involved in worship and and praise of God. Now here's something else we need to consider. When we're talking about worship and praise, look, we're talking about the same thing. We're talking about the same thing. I've talked to people before and and they've tried to defend the idea of using the instrument uh, in, in uh, songs offered to God. And they'll say, well, we're not worshiping, we're praising. What's the difference? What's the difference? If you're praising God and you're worshiping God, that's, what, that's the same thing. We're talking about praising God, that's the same thing as worshiping God. He's God. When you offer that to Him, that's worship, Right? This afternoon, we want to learn just a little more about why we worship God. We can never learn enough. And so we want to continue to, to look at these things. The title of the sermon is The Reasons We Praise God. First, we praise God because of His glory. Let's notice that for just a moment. God is greater than the glory of every earthly nation. That's what the psalmist stated. Heaven is full of glory because God is there. God is to be exalted. His glory, right? He is to be exalted. God will still be in heaven. He will still exist when all the nations of the world are destroyed. He is to be exalted. We worship Him because of His glory. In the Revelation, John was given the description of heaven being uh, uh, the sound ringing throughout heaven with the praises of God. The faithful no longer will have to contend with the problems of this life. And that's what he saw in the sound ringing throughout heaven of this praise and this worship as they surrounded the eternal throne of God. And that continually happens throughout heaven eternally. Worship and pray. Why? Because of God's glory. Because of who He is. Right? They were being blessed and they were surrounding that throne. It is amazing to consider... God paying attention at all to His creation, isn't it? Why would He? 
David asked that question, Psalm 8, 4, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? Why did God bother to pay any attention to humanity? Why? When we look at humanity in comparison to God, why would He even bother? After all that has happened in this earth, particularly toward His Son, why would God visit this people? But He did, didn't He? It's amazing to even consider that, but He does consider us. He knows each of us. His eyes are upon us. His eyes are upon the sparrows. Even the sparrows of this world, He knows each individual hair upon the heads of every person, right? Matthew 10, 29 through 30. He knows us as individuals. He knows every single characteristic of every single person who lives, ever has lived, or ever will live. He is in tune with each of us. And He knows us. That makes the praise of one so exalted even more amazing that we have the opportunity to offer that praise and worship. We praise God for His exalted glory. We also praise God for His exceptional glory. There's none like Him. There is none like Him in all of the earth, in all of the universe, in all of anything that exists. There is none like unto God. Where are the pagan gods of the Canaanites? Where are they at? Where are all of the idol gods of Egypt? What about all the mythical deities of Rome and Greece? For the most part, they're gone into the ash heap of forgotten memories, aren't they, in history? For the most part, they're gone. One day there will be those begging to the false gods of Buddha, Krishna, and Muhammad, along with many others. You know what the answer will be? We can go all the way back to Mount Carmel, where Elijah is standing on Mount Carmel, and he is in this competition with the the priests of Baal and, and the priests of the groves, and we recall that, don't we? He's standing up there, and he offers the 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 choice between the true God of heaven and the false God of Ahab. He says, Israel, make a choice. And you recall what happened. They, they erected the altar and the, the false priests offered up this sacrifice. And they cried out and they cried out. And for all morning they cried out and they acted crazy and they cut themselves. And you, re, you recall what Elijah said. He said, oh, maybe your God's asleep. No, wait, wait. Maybe he's gone out hunting. He, that's it. He might be hunting. Or maybe he's on a long journey and he's not listening to you. That'll be the same answer that these people who stand on that last day and they, they cry out to Muhammad or Krishna or, or Buddha or they cry out to these other false gods of all these myriads of, of uh, uh gods that are, that are being worshipped in the world today. And we remember what Elijah did. He, he erected his altar and he put all of the water on it and he dug a trench around it and it filled up with water and he laid on his sacrifice and not only did the fire come down and consume 
the sacrifice, it consumed the altar, it licked up the water, and now we know who the true God of heaven is. He is exceptional. There are none like Him in the world. That's who we worship. That's who we offer praise to. Why do we praise God? Because of His glory. Because He is exceptional. Because He is to be exalted. He is real. He's been proven to exist. He created time. He created the heavens and the earth and said, Let there be light, Genesis 1. He had the power to call His Son back from death. He walked out of the tomb. He ascended back to heaven and He sits now at the right hand of the Father, ruling over the kingdom of which we are a part. We praise God because of His exalted glory, His exceptional glory, and we praise God because of His grace. That's our second point. His grace. We praise God for His reaching grace. Now we talk about His grace and we've talked about His grace before. But we can't learn enough about His grace and we need to talk about it and we need to try to understand more about it. But His grace reaches down to us. Why? I don't know why. Why would He? But He does. And He's told us how to praise Him. It is amazing to consider... God wanting to interact with people. It is amazing that He would offer that grace to us. What is more amazing is His willingness to join His creation in physical form so He could save us from sin. But that is exactly what He did. Paul said this, Philippians 2, beginning with verse 5. He said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, being, never left the form of God. That's pr- the problem with some of the modern forms of, uh, some of the modern translations. A lot of them, like the uh, English Standard Version, or the NIV, or uh, the New American Standard, some of those, they say, was in the form of God. You know what, what the pr- problem with that is? If you were something... What are you now? You're not whatever you were, right? That's the problem. Now, the, the, the King James and the New King James, and maybe some other uh, translations that I'm not familiar with, being in the form of God means you are that. You are in the form of God. Jesus never gave up His deity. He's 100% man, 100% God who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, thought it not something to be held on to, to remain in heaven. Right? In the glory of heaven, He took upon Himself a servant's role to be in subjection to the Father. He's still deity. He's as much God, you do not, you can't be less God or more God. But He took a role of subjection to the Father to carry out a certain mission, right? But made himself of no reputation and and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. If you're going to die, you have to become a human. That's just the bottom line, right? Why? Just one reason why. 
Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. His great love for humanity. That is His grace reaching down. We praise God for His reaching grace and we praise Him for His raising grace. His raising grace. It's amazing. The reference in our, in our uh, psalm to dust is a biblical metaphor to poverty. He lifts the poor out of the dust. The creation of the world is poor. They're needy, right? And we need to be lifted out because we can't do it ourselves. God has to lift us out of this situation in which we find ourselves, right? The sins of the world, without the grace of God, we can't be raised out of that. But His grace will raise us out. That's why Christ came. He lived and He died. And without Him, we have no answer to the problem of sin. And that's why He came. We're told time and time again about the greatness of God's grace and about the priceless gift of Jesus. Notice what Peter said in 1 Peter 1, beginning with verse 18. For as much as you know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Paul told those in Ephesus, Ephesians 2 beginning with verse 4, But God who is rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sin, hath quickened us or made us alive, together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, we're in Christ. Now, now here's the thing. He wrote this to the church in Ephesus. They were in Christ Jesus. He didn't write this to people who were not Christians. If you're outside of Christ... You're not in Christ, right? He's not writing this letter to the alien sinner. And that's one thing I point out when I have Bible study with someone. The letters were written to Christians. That's why he says, we sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Christians do that, right? That's why he can say that. The reference of the dunghill in our, in our psalm brings to mind the great trash dumps and, and that burn continually. Or, or, uh, on the outside of the wall, uh, particularly in Jerusalem, call it the, the Valley of Hinnom or Gehenna. And Jesus often used that example when He was talking about hell. If you were to look at Jerusalem and you were to see that southern wall, you, you would have the, the Valley of Hinnom running along that southern wall. And that was where the trash di- uh, dump was. They would... Uh, uh, take their trash out there. They would take dead animals out there, burn them there. They would they would take criminals out there. They wouldn't bury the criminal. They'd throw the criminal out on the dump. Let him burn. You know who else hung out out there? The diseased, the lepers, the social outcasts. They hung around out there because in the winters, they didn't have anywhere to be. They couldn't be around other people. They had to keep warm. There was a constant fire out there. And so Jesus used that as an example. The Valley of Hinnom. He said, that's like hell where the, where the flame dieth not. Always continually burning. Constantly had a fire. The trash heap was burning. Right? The, uh, the worm doesn't die. 
the gnashing of teeth, constant fire. So that's where this word Gehenna or Hinnom comes from, right? They would have known that. And so uh, a trip to the dunghill would bring you into contact with the with the social outcasts, people you didn't want to come into contact with, the lepers, the diseased, the beggars. See, they would congregate there. So I think it's fitting when Jesus spoke of hell, He would use that as an example, Matthew 5, 29 through 30. Also, in ancient times before David was able to conquer Jerusalem, the uh, the pagans... They would offer their child, their child sacrifices there to their to their god, excuse me, Chemosh. Stuff like that went on in Hinnom. It's a terrible place, right? And so that was a fitting picture of hell, and it was from hell that we needed God's raising grace. And we received it. That's why we praise God. We praise God because of His glory. His grace makes Him worthy of praise, but we also praise God because of His greatness. That's our third and our last point. Let's notice something about His greatness. God's greatness cancels the past. Isn't that wonderful? Cancels the past. If we allow it to. If we allow it to, it will cancel the past. God can take the worst of humanity and turn it into something new and great. He can wipe the slate clean. We saw that after services this morning, how that process works. Isn't that wonderful? You can take something that that can be corrupted and turn it into something white as snow. Because that's how the blood of Jesus operates. It can wipe away any sin. It can clean any sin, right? Notice what God has done in the past. He took Gideon from the threshing floor. He took Saul from following donkeys. He took David from leading sheep. He took the apostles from the fish and He brought all Christians from the deadness of sin. He cancels the past. He cancels the past. It doesn't get better than that. He takes all of that away. He takes us as He finds us and He transforms us into something wonderful. Have you ever noticed as we read through the New Testament and we look at the life of Christ that every person that Jesus has ever met, anyone, you can, you can watch it and you can read it. He has never walked away from anyone or taught anyone in this life and left them as He found them, something was different. Now, they might not have obeyed Him, but they were changed. They were changed. The rich young ruler, he went away disappointed because he knew the truth, and he didn't like it. But he knew what he needed to do. But he always changed the person. God never lifts up someone halfway. He always gets the job done. Always has the ability to get the job done. He never lifts us up halfway and leaves us. Right? That never happens. He can finish the job. And then we have to maintain. We have to maintain. It's up to us, right? Paul told those in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. 
Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. He cancels the past. He gets rid of it. He makes it new. Let's move ahead. Let's do it better. Isn't that wonderful? God's greatness cancels the past and it conquers problems. If we let it. Now, in our psalm, he uses the image of a childless woman. And it's used to illustrate despair and distress, right? And certainly, the Bible is full of that image and that illustration. But, we also have the example of God taking ladies who were barren and Him blessing them with the ability to later on have children, right? There was Sarah. There was Rachel. There was Rebecca. There was Hannah. We remember that, right? He can take the barrenness of one's life, take away the sin out of it, and now he has a life that can bring forth fruit to his glory. Now I want us to listen to to Peter's words. Notice what Peter warned. Let's go over to 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 3. Notice how he takes out sin and barrenness, if we let him. 2 Peter 1, beginning verse 3. According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He'll take away the barrenness, He'll take away the unfruitfulness, and He will give us what we know as the Christian graces. His greatness in canceling the past and conquering our problems make God worthy of our praise. No doubt about it. I believe we all agree with the psalmist. God is worthy of our praise and our worship. He's worthy because of His glory, His grace, and His greatness. Those are just three things that I thought of. But we need to ask ourselves, Am I giving Him the praise He deserves? Not just on the first day of the week. Not just when we come together collectively. But every day. Every day I need to offer some kind of praise and worship to God. Every day. Everything I do is not worship. But I need to take the time to set aside. I need to go to God in prayer. I need to honor and worship Him in some way. Every single day. But to do that properly, I have to be in a right relationship with Him. I need to be, I need to make sure that I'm doing the things I need to do properly. Now that may mean that I need to straighten my life out with Him. I might need to come back to Him if I've abandoned Him in some way. If I'm not walking in the light, I may need to repent of that, confess my sin to Him. I may need to do that publicly. 
If anyone's here today, then they need to do that. Let that be known as we stand and as we sing. Would you be free from the